You're listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Now for political insight and strategy, let's get started with your hosts. Hi, this is Caitlin Martin. This is Patrick Martin. This is Mark Alderman. This is Howard Schweitzer. Mark, Patrick, Caitlin, good afternoon. It's Friday, April 2nd, the day after my favorite day of the year, which is appropriate, April Fool's Day, but also the day I got my second shot. So there you go. go. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, I hope it was actually filled with vaccine instead of being air, but because I didn't feel anything, but that's a whole different story. (laughs) Well, they have had some problems this week. Uh, I guess so, J&J. But let's, uh, let's get into it on a Friday. Uh, I think we'll talk this week about the massive, quote-unquote, infrastructure package that Biden rolled out this week um, because $1.9 trillion wasn't enough. Now we got to go to four. Um, we'll talk about John Boehner and his new book that has Washington buzzing here on a Friday and and then there's been a lot of corporate activity this week around the voting rights legislation in Georgia, which we talked about last week. Um, but but there's been a lot of a lot of corporate consternation around political giving and and similar issues. And so I think that's a that's a timely topic. But let's start let's start with infrastructure. Patrick, talk to us about what the president announced in in broad strokes and how they're going to run this package. Yeah. So what you saw uh, in terms of the announcement in Pittsburgh and then the the plan that was laid out that followed that speech up was a massive investment uh, in infrastructure in the United States that will be paid for, um, not entirely, but uh, much of which will be paid for by Uh, tax increases, specifically rolling back a lot of provisions from the 2017 tax reform bill that President uh, Trump and the Republicans passed. And we spoke, you know, Howard, I think earlier today, and I sort of refer to this as it's an attempt to do something that the Obama administration uh, didn't do or wasn't able to do, and to also simultaneously Uh, undo President Trump's probably biggest legislative accomplishment from his time in office. So it's it's a really tricky kind of referring to the tax bill to the tax bill. Exactly. So it's it's going to be an extraordinary uh, legislative lift to achieve it. What what we're going to see is uh, uh, a little bit of theater followed by the actual kind of mechanism of government. And this is a great uh, time to use Howard's uh, favorite line, don't buy the head fake, because what what we will see is an attempt uh, or what looks like an attempt at some bipartisan discussion around this plan that was released. That will probably involve the gang of 20 U.S. senators, uh, you know, getting together to talk about a lot of these provisions. And while it is to some extent political theater. It's political theater that matters for members like Joe Manchin, Kristen Cinema. They want this bipartisan conversation to take place. They're not in, you know, those members are, are genuinely interested in at least perceived uh, bipartisanship. Then 
it will become clear very quickly that there is no bipartisan path to passing anything uh, this large. And they will move down a reconciliation path like the one we just saw on the last COVID bill. Um, you're going to have committee chairmen crafting this with leadership, with the White House, with the Senate parliamentarian to try and make sure that this thing can pass muster with the very specific rules of reconciliation. And the person that will ultimately, I think, shape this uh, in, a, in a more profound way than anyone else is Senator Manchin. He is the only person on the Democratic side that actually is probably willing to blow this all up if if he wants to. He's there. There are just not six, seven, eight red state Democrats the way there used to be. I remember during the Affordable Care Act, you had to get a whole bunch of different members from red states to get everyone in line. He he is going to play an outsized role in shaping how big the package ultimately is, what the pay fors look like. Um, it's it's just really kind of impossible to me to understate or overstate rather his his influence. But ultimately, I think um, it's my prediction that they will get everyone on board in the end and they will pass a transformational uh, large package and then we'll see if it works. But I think that's how this process plays out. We saw Speaker Pelosi say she wants a vote in the House by the 4th of July. You know, you could see it getting pushed back a little bit from there and they're they're going to try and get something done, you know, in the fall. Uh, and go ahead, Mark. Just if I may supplement, Howard, I think that's all spot on. And I think the takeaway from all of that is that there will be a bill, but it isn't going to look anything like what Joe Biden stood up in Pittsburgh and presented for a number of reasons. One reason is what the administration has proposed was proposed by and written by the administration. And was done with very little involvement from leadership, let alone rank and file in Congress. Secondly, it's now going in pieces to the committees in Congress, and everybody is going to hang their ornaments on it. So incredibly enough, Howard, when you say 1.9 trillion wasn't enough, neither is 4 trillion, because first it's going to get bigger. And then they're going to have to start cutting it down to fit not only Joe Manchin, but reconciliation. And a lot of what is being proposed isn't something you can do through reconciliation. So the long and short of it is, I agree with Patrick, there is going to be a bill and, and a big bill and a transformational bill, and it'll be called infrastructure, even though half the stuff in it isn't. It's healthcare. But, but it's healthcare, but it isn't gonna look anything like- Less than half, Mark. It's been presented. Well, and before we get to the substance of the bill, uh, Caitlin, what are you telling clients about how to engage in the in shaping the the legislation you know we've been educating clients that they they need to get in there quickly and have these conversations and and discuss ways that um, whether it's their technology or their business is going to help meet the goals of this administration in reducing climate change promoting environmental sustainability um, there are 
tons of opportunities in this very, very large package that, um, as Mark alluded to, was a lot more than just roads and bridges and infrastructure. And there is a ton of opportunity to get um, get our clients' messaging and goals into this package, but they need to think about it the way this administration is thinking about it. It's And it's interesting because... They put a ton of money out to the states through the American Rescue Plan. And the the federal government cannot, as I say, retail a $4 trillion bill. So they're going to have to do the same thing again. I think this isn't just about um, setting yourself up with the federal government. It's also, I think clients need to be thinking ahead to execution both at the federal, but most definitely the state and local levels, um, because that's where the rubber's going to hit the road on a lot of this. Mark, I, I got to ask why? Why? I mean, look, I know why, because all your friends want to do a second new deal, but it's not, it's not necessary. Why are we, why are we spending $6 trillion because elections have consequences. Well, that's a that's a bad answer. That's I mean, that's yeah. The Joe Biden's the president. I stipulate that. But why? This is what he was elected to do, and it's popular, Howard. It may not be. Popular. No, he was elected because Hold he wasn't on. Donald Trump. It may not be popular Mark. in the Capitol building. It is popular in the country. But Mark. And it's popular in the country because it's needed. Mark, so was Donald Trump's rhetoric. The, 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 definition, the definition of leadership is doing things that are unpopular. You don't, that, we don't need more populism. We don't need a $4 trillion. We don't need $4 trillion of spending. But the country disagrees with you. Yeah, I mean, there is bipartisan support, I think, out in the country for infrastructure, we can, there is not bipartisan support necessarily for how we're going to pay for it or every single thing in the Biden plan. But I mean, anyone who just like lives in a community, you see stuff crumbling all over the country. And then you go, and then you go to different, you know, pre-COVID, you go to different countries and you're seeing the investments they're making and you come back home and you're like, wow, we are really getting behind. And it's, that's just, I think, I think ordinary people have kind of internalized that. And and how much of the four trillion is that? Not very much. Less than six percent, actually. So remains to be seen. Just because it's popular, just because it's popular doesn't mean it's necessary. Howard, and I know this is the Beltway briefing. I know you live inside the Beltway, but you should now that the CDC, you have two shots. And Felicia does too. The CDC just today said it's okay. You should get out there in the country oh. and you should talk. Oh. To this people. is a pot oh, calling the kettle. Are you yeah. serious, Mark? That's Mark, my line. Mark, Mark, I'll be I'll be up there in Nantucket with you very, very soon. Oh no, I've been to Vermont also. And Bryn Mawr, Mark. Oh yeah, that's the beacon. Mark, of you've been to Nantucket, Bryn Mawr, and Brooklyn. This country is falling behind, has falling behind. Things are falling apart. There's no question. We need infrastructure, but we need infrastructure. And we need to tackle climate. 
and we need to take on an existential threat to the future of the entire planet. Absolutely. And that requires transforming a fossil fuel economy, not in a day, but not taking forever. This is not only Um, popular, it's important, and it is exactly what government does. I am... I am all for I am all for this bill from the perspective of our clients and the opportunity it creates for our clients. I want to be very clear on that point. But opportunity. But it is it's crazy to spend four trillion dollars. And it is the the federal government gotta get set up for the future. Gotta catch up to the present. With the crumbling infrastructure, the grid, and and more, and got to get set up for the future. I I know not everyone is interested in the transformational part of it. You didn't like Nancy Pelosi calling the rescue plan transformational. Not sure actually it was. But this is exactly what leadership is about. I don't know that he gets it done. But this is exactly what leadership. The justification that it's popular is not a justification for doing the bill. I actually fully disagree. Once Americans learn what's actually in this two trillion dollar package, I don't think it's going to be all that popular. But we'll see. Yeah, well, the political part of it's the interesting part. I mean, the 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 policy debate we go back and forth forever. But the the question of why Howard, why uh, are they going to do it? You know, I think a lot of us have experienced in our time in government, it used to be that you would legislate with an eye to preserving the majority. And I think there's no doubt Democrats would like to preserve their majority and expand it. But I sort of think that they're viewing this as this might be our only shot. And if we can do as much as we can get done in two years and then we lose one or both houses given how thin the majority margin, we, we want to accomplish as much as we possibly can. And we're willing to, that's just kind of, that's what I think the the calculation is. And it's very, I mean, I'm amazed given how slim these majorities are. If I were a betting person, I were to go and place a bet on this. I mean, it's going to be close and there's going to be a million times. It's going to look like it's going to fall apart, but I bet, I bet it passes in the end. I bet something very large uh, passes in the end. By the way, the Progressive Caucus wants a ten trillion dollar bill. Right. So I guess by those standards, Mark, <laughs> Joe Biden's a moderate. It's a moderate. But this is this is the best part about our party, Howard. We give lip service to stuff like that, but then they get rolled. And the Republican Party, the people on the far right, set the tone for everything, and you got to play by their rules. We just we just are like, okay, whatever you guys say, and then they'll vote for whatever compromises cut in the end and they'll complain and they'll say it wasn't big enough and everything else, but well, it's going to be fascinating and it's going to, it's a, it's a lot of money. I said to a client the other day, we were talking about something and I said, well, I think you can only get $20 million out of that. And he was like, Howard, did you hear what you just said? (laughs) You just called $20 million, not a lot of money. That's the world we're living in. This is. I was talking to a, uh, I didn't be discreet, but I was talking to a deputy chief of staff of a very uh, prominent and important senator. 
And I said, here's the ask. We need $10 million for this. And she said, get out of here. She said, anything under $100 million, we, we don't even listen to. That's what's happened to the numbers. But but what she did say, and this is to Caitlin's point and the answer to your, your earlier question, Howard, uh, what she did say was, go talk to the committee. The committees are going to be doing the detail. And the, you're absolutely right that you can't you can't do this in minute micromanagement fashion. It's too big and it's moving too fast. So a lot of this money is going to go out and people, the states, the agencies are going to figure out later what to do with it. But these committees are in real time taking requests and ideas and suggestions and are going to craft real provisions where amounts of money that are very small compared to trillions, but are very, very meaningful to our clients and to mere mortals like the four of us, they're going to be they're going to be in this bill. So to, to just follow up on on what Caitlin was saying, there, there's a lot of work being done on very specific ideas and, and asks here. And that's why to uh, further frustrate you, it's going to get bigger before it gets smaller. It, and will Kaylin, shrink, it will shrink to pass, but it's going to get bigger before it gets smaller. Kaylin, I want to ask you something because this is something we talked about a couple of weeks ago too, but as mad as I know the whole thing makes you, don't you think that Republicans have some role in the blame because they have completely lost the mantle of fiscal responsibility. So there's not like for, for years, for decades, Democrats have sort of been forced to play by the rules of we need to be fiscally responsible. We need, and, and now because the Republicans, when they were in charge, didn't live up to that, the Democrats don't feel any need to play kind of within those boundaries. So I, I just think like, if you're kind of, if we're being honest about it, you can say like, I hate what they're doing and I disagree with it. But I think if we're being honest about it, there's not a counterweight on the Republican side that's credible when trying to push back on fiscal responsibility. And I think if you're someone that does care about fiscal responsibility, which I certainly do, I know you do, I think a lot of us do, that's, it's not good to have both parties have completely lost their way on that. You're absolutely right, Patrick. And and I would say, you know, tr Donald Trump was certainly not a fiscally conservative, um, you know, small budget conscious. He really blew things out of the water. Absolutely. And then we, you know, had a global pandemic that we had to throw a lot of money at. And I completely agree that it makes me nervous that no one seems to be thinking about the deficit and about the, you know, who's actually going to be paying for these huge packages. It's, it's our grandchildren, our great grandchildren, probably our children um, at this point. And it's, it, it makes me a little nervous, but, 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 you know, it, it's just, it's mind boggling when we throw these numbers around and it's how many trillion I know between, so this is the $2 trillion package that was supposed to be focused on infrastructure. But, you know, as, as we said, less than 6% actually goes to the bridges, highways, roads, what we think of as traditional infrastructure. But then in a couple of weeks, we're going to get the release from the White House of the contours of another package focused on human infrastructure, which is 
probably combined together going to be a three to four trillion dollar bill, which will make it the most expensive piece of legislation in American history. And that's not by a little. So yes, it does. I love the opportunity for clients. It's, it's the half and half, Caitlin. Yes, there's a lot of opportunity here. We're going to work hard, make sure we get some key provisions in this bill. But looking forward and from a deficit perspective, of course, I'm concerned. From an inflation perspective. Oh, yes. Yeah. And look, I mean, that's my principal concern. And But I just, <laughs> having spent a decade in government, my bias is against government being the most efficient allocator of capital. Well, and sad. because it isn't. And the private sector, what, the right way to do this is to incentivize the private sector to to execute. And um, unfortunately, that's, you know, it's going to create a lot of opportunity. And yes, it is necessary in some respects, Mark, but the government government agencies aren't the best allocators of capital and, and it's a lot of capital. So it concerns me. Um, let's move to, let's, let's talk about the, the voting rights legislation and, and corporate political engagement. There's, as I said, I, I, I had a flurry of inquiries this week from clients um, based on inquiries from the, from the C-suite or the board about uh, corporate engagement in, in politics in light of uh, what happened in Georgia. I think Delta spoke out against Delta Airlines against the Georgia law and um, um, suffered some, some retribution down there politically. Um, it, corporate engagement in politics is is getting getting dicey. After January sixth, um, many companies pulled back, including Cozen O'Connor, by the way, on their political giving to members who didn't vote to seat the electors um, to certify the the electoral college result. Um, so. It's just there's a lot going on in this space. Clients look to us to to understand how to engage. And I think it's worthy of some discussion to talk about how we and other companies think about that stuff. Well, it's, it's been, Howard, an extraordinary year in terms of corporate engagement in the political process because it, it began in uh, – the summer, almost a year ago, with Black Lives Matter, with George Floyd's uh, killing. And you had corporation after corporation, business after business, taking a look at, at its own programs and, and diversity and policies. It then on January 6th hit a fault line where, where a lot of companies just wouldn't participate anymore and and now the voting rights uh, issue is, is a further extension of it I think there are there are a lot of different things going on I I am not entirely naive uh, even though I I may travel uh, to Vermont and and Nantucket but I I think part of it is companies just trying to do the right thing I think there's actually a sincere moral, component of this. Part of it is leadership of companies trying to, to 
work with the employees of the company and the shareholders, if you're a public company, and be good stewards and custodians for them. And then there is the marketing dimension, where if you're Delta Airlines and you're headquartered in Atlanta and boycott movements are arising around the Georgia Voting Act, uh, you got to think about about what that means for your business. So I think it ranges all the way from sincere good citizenship to just old-fashioned, hard-nosed business decision and and everything in between. It is a fascinating and emerging multidimensional game there. I just saw, um, guys, a couple of pieces of of breaking news. One, the Major League Baseball pulled the All-Star game from from Georgia, uh, from Atlanta, um, which is quite, quite um, an action. And then sadly, there's been another attack at the Capitol. A Capitol police officer was killed and, and, and another person, another uh, officer injured uh, after being attacked by a motorist. So, uh, mm. I agree uh, with everything Mark it's, said. It's upsetting. Very, very upsetting. I thought Mark's comments were spot on. I want to build a little upon the second part of what he said, the, the, the business part of it. You know, you go to certain parts of the country and I'll, I'll you know, I'll go, you know, to rural parts of Michigan uh, during the summer, visit, you know, in-laws and you're in communities and you talk to people and, and you hear from people who think differently. And, and if you kind of show, you know, city or from more progressive part, well, you'll, you'll often, well, this is just how people think around here, or this is just kind of how it is. Well, in the consumer economy, the global consumer economy, it works the same way. And companies are making what they perceive to be a good business decision based on how they make money. And this kind of angry, uh, sometimes racist populism that's taken hold in certain parts of the country, you know, it may have a voice sometimes because of gerrymandered congressional districts. It may have an outsized voice because of institutions, you know, like the Senate where every state gets to, regardless of how many people you have. But in the consumer economy, it's a popular vote. And there are more consumers who agree with taking steps like what these companies are deciding than those who aren't. And so the 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 yeah, sort of yeah. like morality part of it, I think is really important because I agree with Mark. I'm not so cynical as to think that that it's only about business. But if if the morality part for anyone listening, if that if they disagree with that, it's just it's just business. And and that's just the way it kind of goes. It's very interesting as I as I listen to Patrick, uh, Howard and Caitlin and, and reflect on what you were saying earlier, Howard, about government not being a good allocator of capital, that this is the market speaking. This is the market deciding voting rights legislation. And and maybe the market is a better allocator of voting rights than government is. I certainly think it is a better allocator than the Georgia legislature was. But But it's very interesting because this is the market driving political yeah. 
driving lawmaking. Oh, okay? This is the kind, as opposed to $4 trillion, this is the kind of thing where the popular sentiment should drive the outcome. Well, you're, you're going you're gonna to get your wish there. I've been saying on this podcast for weeks that voting rights it will, will drive policymaking in Washington, including uh, on the filibuster, the cloture rule. This, this issue is not going away. It's only beginning. Because state after state is going to consider these restrictions, Republican-controlled state after state, and the market is telling it something. We always like to say, listen to the market. The market's telling you something. The market is is telling these Republican legislatures something, and it, it would really be something if if the market stopped these rather than S1 and HR1. I mean, it's ironic because, as we discussed last week, the Georgia bill, if you actually read it, is not as bad as it's being made out to be. But the fact of the matter is... That facts is it, don't matter anymore? Is that the well, fact of the matter, Howard? No, I, it's, no I, think it, I think it matters that it matters even that they just did it. Right. Because That's the, the laws didn't need to be reformed. It's a reaction to Trump's false, fabricated campaign to overturn the election. First, and, first all, and, and they're doing his they're doing his bidding right. on the base of a false premise. And I think as much as the law itself, and maybe this is what I was missing last week, as much as the law itself may not be problematic, the mere fact that you're doing it on the base of a false premise is repugnant and wrong. And these Republican legislatures around the country are absolutely wrong for for doing it on that basis. Well, no matter how... No matter what the law says, and I, I concede to not having studied it line by line, I've read enough about it to know that it, it's not good. It may not be as bad as some reports, but the intention, it's what you're addressing. The intention was to limit voting and the disproportionate impact falls on communities of color. And that's why you're getting the reaction you are. Whether it succeeds or not, in fact, we'll we'll see. There's there's a case to be made that it's going to drive turnout up in, right. in the Democratic side. But it's what you're it's, saying. It is the it is the bad intent that is being that is being condemned by Delta and Coke and Major League Baseball. Criminalizing giving food and water to voters stuck in I, long lines. Like Mar I saw Mark Elias posted about that. He's like, I keep getting asked. Why did they do that? Well, who does it impact? I mean, this it's just, it's nonsense. It's dumb. That's just dumb. I don't think, I, I don't know. We don't know. We don't have to get into the, the details, but it's, it's, it's dumb. And as I said, it's based on a false premise in my opinion. And, and, and a no, bunch of lies. It's not a false premise. That's not the matter of opinion. That's a fact. I, I agree. Um, I think everybody on this podcast agrees that there was um, 
that that Joe Biden won the election. Let's put it that way. Caitlin agrees with that. Right, Caitlin? Of course, I do agree right. with that. I, <laughs> I, I just think, you know, there are facts and everyone should read the key provisions of the bill. And, you know, the Atlanta, yeah. Atlanta Journal-Constitution came out with a big correction yesterday. This bill does, I mean, and that's that's where but respectfully disagree. Read. It's interesting when you actually get into the provisions of the bill. But it does, it almost does, it, in my opinion, doesn't matter in the sense uh, this this kind of false premise point i think is it's worse than anything it's worse than anything that that the georgia legislature felt like they had to fix the laws when they when they really weren't broken not really weren't when they were not when when we had a we had a actually a successful election at an incredibly difficult time we should be celebrating celebrating the system yeah it's not hard to figure out one party benefits from expanding access to voting and one party feels that they have to restrict access to voting. I mean, it's not, it's, there's, there's all sorts of components that deal with race and economic status, but the self-interest part of it is also just, it's like preservation, right? They, they feel like, you know, Joe Biden won the popular vote by 7 million votes. I mean, they're just like, if we don't do something, we can't win. And that's, that to me tells you all you need to know. In addition to Howard, to what you said, that it's based off a completely false premise. By the way, if Trump hadn't mishandled the COVID crisis, which of course is an enormous if, but if he had, if he had talked about the vaccine and, and, you know, pumped that up and talked about and not talked about injection of bleach and he'd still be the president which I'm glad he's not. Yeah, but he could have won the Electoral College and lost popular vote by like five and a half million votes. It's totally, I mean, absolutely. it is completely possible. <laughs> absolutely. Didn't but then to bring it full much. circle, that that popular vote margin, why in the context of uh, where we started this conversation on why these companies are doing what they're doing, they recognize there are more people in this country that, disagree with that type of stuff than there are who agree. And to Mar Mark, you said it so well, that's, that's, you know, um, the economy, that's just the economics winning out. Look, we had our own decision to make as a firm um, after January 6th. And we made the decision not to give money to members who through our pack to members who supported um not certifying the electoral college results. And that wasn't a universally necessarily popular decision, but it was overwhelmingly popular. And it was, we're, we're a law firm. And our, our whole reason for being is execution, proper execution of the law. And I don't think, you know, we, we didn't, we didn't have any choice as far as I'm concerned, but uh, it was the right thing to do. And, and for our employees, for all sorts of different reasons, we had to make that decision, Mark. As you know, I couldn't agree more. We had no choice as a law firm, but to do what we did and to stand up for the rule of law. <laughs> Excuse me. We did it in part, in part because Leadership, I think, correctly believed it was the right thing to do. Leadership correctly believed 
it reflected the will of our of our employees, of our partners. I don't know that it was market driven, Howard, in the way that Delta and Coke may be. I don't know that what we thought our clients would want us to do drove the decision. But I do think we were willing to disappoint clients by doing the right thing. And yeah. and we did. It yeah, it was yes. Um well, it's gosh, it's uh, we we need to get away from a tax on the capital again today and all this craziness and vitriol. It's 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 just it's so disturbing. So guys, let's end on something everybody can agree on. John Boehner came out with his book today, his biography and his autobiography. And uh, apparently the Caitlin, the, um, the audio version is something to behold because uh, at the end of apparently late night recording sessions after several glasses of wine and, and, and many, many cigarettes, the former speaker of the house would throw in some, <laughs> F you Ted Cruz's and apparently this thing is filled with uh, friendly hellos to the Senator from Texas, which is, which is something I think many people, many people, Patrick can agree on that. Totally. Absolutely. I'm smiling because I, I, this will probably not be a shock to anyone who knows my kind of crusty Midwestern Irish Catholic side, but I'm a, I'm a John Boehner fan. I, I just really like him. I think he's a true regular kind of guy. I mean, his story of growing up in a one bathroom, two bedroom house with 11 brothers and sisters that he had to take care of. I love that stuff. That's, that's, that's America. And he, particularly since, you know, his time as speaker came to an end when he came in the room whistling and <laughs> was so glad to be done. He has just been so candid and everything that I've read in and the listening part uh, is, is great too. But the, everything I read today, his criticisms of the tea party movement of the Fox news kind of world of president Obama, a, a lot of it, I found myself agreeing with as I was reading it. I thought it was very balanced and I'm, I'm super excited to sit down and read the whole thing. Cause I think it'll be, I think it'll be really entertaining to read. Yeah. I look forward to reading it as well. He's a good storyteller. If nothing else, he is a great, that's the, uh, that's the Irishman in him for sure. That's the Irishman in him. But, but I just have to observe what, what a world we live in. It is such a measure of the velocity with which events have developed in the last several years and the distance that we traveled in the Trump administration. But here we are, what, six, seven years out from a Boehner speakership. We're nostalgic for the good old <laughs> for days John of Boehner. John Boehner. <laughs> even you, Mark, even happen? you. <laughs> Absolutely, Caitlin. I would love to turn back the clock to the good old days of Speaker Boehner. How did that happen? <laughs> we have come so far so fast that John Boehner is now some 19th century Midwestern John, figure. Yeah, it's crazy. Amazing. Amazing. It's crazy. Yeah. Well, Patrick. I was just going to say, Mark, you're right. I mean, 
the days of that kind of deal cutting, he would have been a great speaker in a different era. You know, he just, you can tell he wanted to be speaker the way he had seen it done before the, the legends, the Sam Rayburns of the world, like, you know, the tip O'Neill's that's what he wanted to do. And that just isn't, doesn't happen anymore. And he was followed up by Paul Ryan, who was this sort of, you know, true believer in conservative ideas and, and promoted really, you know, conservative thinking. And that wasn't sustainable either. The, the nucleus of the Republican party right now is this populism, this identity driven politics that Donald Trump represents. And, and it's too bad because I think both Paul Ryan and John Boehner had a lot to offer. Um, and it's, it's just a different time. Yeah. Well, that's a good place to leave it. Caitlin, Patrick, Mark, uh, everybody enjoy the holiday weekend. Have a great holiday for those of you celebrating. And uh, this was fun as always. Happy Friday, everybody. And we'll be back next week. You've been listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Please subscribe to our podcast so our episodes are automatically sent to you when they are released. The Beltway Briefing Podcast has been produced by Hometown Podcasts and Audio, Washington, D.C.